Hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance, where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious and in this episode I will be talking to two artists about a subject close to my heart, the relationship between organisations, be they venues, companies, agencies and artists. Living through a pandemic has highlighted a number of inequalities across our society. Perhaps we all knew this and simply had our heads in the sand, but one of the areas it seems to have highlighted is the fragile ecology upon which the performing arts industry is built. The community Freelancers Make Theatre Work, a group of volunteers set up to give freelancers a voice, has published data which says that over a third of the freelance workforce received no support during COVID, making their reliance on the relationship between organisation and artist ever more important. So today I'm joined by two artists to unpick this thorny issue. We have Sita Patel, dancer and choreographer and artistic director of Sita Patel Dance, and Wayne Parsons, artistic director of Voxed. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for being here. So to start, I wondered if you would tell me in a nutshell what your setup is. So Sita, you have your own company, Sita Patel Dance. Are you freelance yourself? Do you employ freelancers? Hi there, yes. So my situation is that I have a limited company and we've just turned into a charity during COVID actually, which was really great that we were still able to push forward with those things. And there are no full-time employees. We've got a board of trustees who are all on a voluntary basis. And I've got my producer, Sarah Sheed, who works on a project-by-project basis. And fundraiser, Nina Patel, and myself also employed only when there are certain projects going on. So in a sense, we are probably one of the lucky setups in as much as we are not building base. So we haven't been affected by not being able to go in to somewhere other than obviously rehearsing. We are all affected as a macrocosm of the arts, but on an individual level, we were still able to communicate communicate with each other, keep the company moving forward in terms of its transition from me being a freelancer into me being a company, which is a lot of paperwork and it's lots of behind the scenes stuff. Mm. So I'm very much still a freelancer and I do other work separate from the company Mm. as an individual. So I've been impacted as much as every other freelancer. So you're a freelancer responsible for freelancers. So even more fragile than many. (laughs) Is that the same for you, Wayne, or similar? Um, Similar in some senses, yeah. I mean, I am freelance. Everybody that I employ for the projects that I work on for Vox, they're all freelance. It was part of our plan last year to become a charity. And that was embedded into an Arts Council grant that we got. And we actually ended up not doing that just to kind of save a bit of cash. But it is an aspiration to become a charity at at some point. But at the moment, Vox is a company limited by guarantee. And that was a shift last year for us so we were operating as Wayne Parsons Dance that wasn't a registered company and we now are a registered company but yeah very much exists in a sort of freelance setup Mm. and it's been a hard year for everyone hasn't it it feels like the understatement of the century actually as I say that (laughs) and I think it's interesting that for many people the pandemic's highlighted the injustices and inequalities that have always been there and for others it's brought about new ones and I wondered what you feel has been brought to the fore for you and your company as we consider the fragility of the foundation that our industry is built on. Wayne how's it looked for you? 
like most people, we sort of had to pivot at the beginning of last year. Like we were literally a couple of weeks before we went into lockdown, had secured some funding to tour an indoor work. And very quickly, we realized none of that could happen. And then we sort of rethought about what it is we were going to be doing for that year. And we ended up coming up with some different projects that could kind of keep us busy. But I think one of the things last year highlighted for me was if I take an organization out of what it is I do, like an organization outside, so a venue or a dance organization, people that we're working with, and 2020 did that to me, it's kind of like, we're not going to be touring to these venues. Then the question for me became, how do I continue or how do I foster relationships with audiences outside of that relationship? And I think that might not be the same for all organizations, but for me, that became very apparent. Like, how do I sort of keep a connection with audiences, keep communicating with audiences outside mm. of dance venues and organizations supporting you the work? You always sort of acted as your gatekeeper, I suppose, then to your audience. Exactly. You're trying to think round how you establish that for yourself exactly and and perhaps think about projects that have a direct relationship between boxed and audiences communities participants and not having to go via the gatekeepers yeah. to, to kind of access that and did it feel that those gatekeepers had shut down closed and were quiet or were some of the people that you'd been working with still trying to work in different ways in terms of the original plans that we had, obviously everyone had to yeah, shut yeah. down because we couldn't be touring indoor yeah. work to venues. But new relationships opened yeah. up and different ways of working. So we came up with an outdoor project called Goggle Dance that was sort of taking work to people's doorsteps. And that became a way that I could sort of work with organisations in a very different way. It really shifted yeah. what it was we were doing and how we were doing it. Yeah. Sita, does that ring true for you? Is any of that true for you? In a funny way, it's almost the opposite <laughs> for me because there was just this slew of content being put online and I sort of just retreated from that completely. I think the main reason for that was because I didn't want to put things online that weren't as well crafted and prepared as the work mm, that I put mm. on stage. And so I didn't just want to put a film of a work that I've done on stage that was for my archival purposes as an online piece of work because it wouldn't have done it justice. And also there was a lot of requests, which I'm sure lots of people had. And I started very early on, probably at the risk of maybe burning some bridges, though I tried to be open about why my choices were to not offer content for free to venues and other people, because mm. I think it was going to set us up for a massive mm. fail in terms of longevity. And that's not to say that it was about the audience interface where they might get content free, but between organizations or whoever's setting up a platform wanting artists to provide content for free. And so I said no to a lot of things across the board. It didn't matter if it was a high profile venue or just another person doing stuff. And there were few things I said yes to the odd podcast, but ultimately when I said no, it came with an explanation, an long email about why I felt it wasn't right for me but also right for the industry and so I wasn't really thinking of audiences at that point I was just sort of I need to stop for a second I can't just sort of panic react to this yeah. it didn't feel right for me yeah. and I mean I love the fact that the digital space is so democratic mm. and it's open and available to everyone but again it just didn't feel right for me to sort of put things out there that I didn't feel were 
representative of the way that I work. Mm. We've heard very similar from various artists that we've spoken to across these series. And it's really interesting because there's some artists that needed to keep busy and immediately fell into that. I mean, we we were working with some artists where we were immediately pivoting a, a product idea to make it happen. And then we spoke to a couple of other artists that were exactly the same as you. I need some time. I haven't considered things like this before I need to come to terms with what's happening globally around me those things Mm. have all come to the full for all of us haven't they so both of you when COVID hit how were you supported financially how did you support yourselves with those decisions that you both took on Sita how did you get through that well in that case nobody was offering you money necessarily you were turning down requests for free so no I I mean I was very lucky that my company got an emergency grant we weren't eligible for some of the cultural recovery funds because the company hadn't been running long enough but we were eligible for more than the 2,500 of for an individual which meant that I could not only support myself but also a couple of other people employed by the company on a freelance basis with that emergency funding and without that I mean I probably would be eating like toast and tea for dinner but um, (laughs) do you know what I mean I mean it sounds a bit drastic but it really made a difference for that year because as a freelancer it's feast of famine we can spread out money if so if it all comes in front end of the year like it's spread out you can make things work and save and all the rest of it and then actually I was quite lucky in this latter part of last year because I was doing maternity cover for university teaching I was curating for Dance Umbrella I did a few other bits and pieces which wouldn't normally have come into my life otherwise and somehow I've managed to make ends meet I'm just lying low really because there's lots of budgets in the balance and tours postponed and all of this so I'm just kind of if I stay still enough maybe nobody will notice that nothing's happening (laughs) (laughs) I really like that sentiment Wayne does that resonate with you Yeah, I mean, I'm just going back. I wrote down drastic. Like Cita was like, it sounds quite drastic. It's not oh, drastic, it's not. is it? It's kind of weird. I know, we're I know. Like, we're laughing. But yeah, when you have no work, then you don't get no, paid. Exactly. That's kind of, that's how that goes. For me, I was, I mean, I've been able to apply for the self-employment support scheme. So there's been a little bit of money coming in through that. And then goggle dance ran in a couple of towns so there's been some fees from that Mm. as well but other than that that's been it so it has been sort of just pareback and you know much like Sita we had a project ready to go and we can't so and just sort of sitting on that going what shape might that take and could that happen this year and also we can't Mm. spend any of that right now so it's not like I can use that to support myself it's actually there for a project so yeah. Um, can I just extend on, on yeah. a thought that Sita said a moment ago? She's totally right. At the beginning, there was a sort of rush to get stuff out and putting things out that perhaps weren't made for a digital platform. And we're a little bit further ahead now, and it feels mm. like 10 months down the line, there are now lots of dance organizations or venues commissioning things specifically for the digital spaces. So it feels like we've sort of caught up a little bit and there are opportunities to be sort of making specifically for that mm. platform. And then there was also an access question that Sita kind of touched on there, which is it's much more democratic to put stuff online, particularly to put stuff online for free. It just means that people do have access to art that perhaps might not have previously, which I think is great. And also for me, it's opening up a lot of thinking about what a co-creating model might look like and how digital outputs can really sort of utilize that co-creating model to think differently about how we work and what we make for those platforms. I was going to ask actually about what you think organizations have learned through this perhaps the hard way Mm. and what shifts you see as artists happening and whether you feel like your voice has been heard 
as we all consider these things, that's spot on, that co-producing and that idea that an organisation has to be hand in hand with its artists and its audiences and making work as a triangle in a way, rather than just mm -hmm, commissioning mm -hmm. you as Wayne Parsons, come and do your show, we'll have an audience ready for you, then you move on to the next venue. The responsibility mm -hmm. of sitting with the organisation there to get the audience in, but also you have no sort of say as to how your work might be presented in a slightly different way for that slightly different area or place. So it does feel like some opportunities there. And I'm interested in digging down into this, obviously, as someone who's thinking about mm -hmm. plans for next year. So tell me, what do you think we've learned and what shifts do you see happening? And yes, Sita. I don't yet feel that the organisations I'm observing through social media, whatever, I think there's a lot of mm -hmm. desire and intent to go in a particular direction. But I think there's still a gap and there's still a space to grow into, specifically about digital content. If you think about when you make a show for stage, it takes a long time to do that. Mm. I mean, you're really unlikely to make digital work that's been shot over more than a couple of days, unless it's like a little bit each day that someone then puts together. Like a shoot is too expensive to have like four weeks of shooting. That's like a movie. It's not financially feasible. And so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect in terms of creating work for a digital space that is of the quality that people are used to of what's being created in the live space. And I don't think from what I'm seeing organizations, unless they're very well funded, which nobody really is right now because everybody's scrambling. So it's not me saying, well, they don't understand. It's because nobody has that kind of money yet. And so... I, th mm -hmm. I think we need to be kind of yeah. conscious of the fact that putting things in the digital space, yeah. if we want it of the quality you want of the stage work that people have produced over this time, that's a different skill set. It's a completely different skill set. I mean, I've got experience in making film. I've been to film school, so I know how expensive it is, and I'm only on the periphery of it. And we are nowhere near that in live stage work. I mean, to create of the quality that we should and hopefully will one day be able to do. That's really interesting. Ben Duke talked about this a lot and he mentioned the artists and the organisations not knowing so much about this. We know about theatre, we know about stages and mm. we're suddenly both of us mm. in this completely new area mm -hmm. trying to find our way. And, and there's a beauty in that of us both sort of going, right, this is new, mm -hmm. come on, let's try. But also, like you say, it's mm -hmm. it's not our place of comfort and he kept saying I know about live theatre I don't know that I know about digital and so I'm having to learn that whole thing again so that's one thing that's come through I mean I did the play on digital how we've all moved to digital but we're not Sita I interrupted you then what were you going to say sorry I was just going to say mm -hmm. like I can give an example and I'm super grateful for the commission but I just released a short film last week and it was a very tiny commission, it was a thousand pounds. And the initial pitch to me was a thousand pound commission to make a 20 minute video. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> wow, that, that's, I mean, that's pretty ambitious. And it's not normally, I'm not like a late career artist, but I'm by no means a newbie either. Those days are gone. I don't want to make work on a, on a, on a shoestring like that. But I decided to say yes, mm. because I was excited about that specific idea. And I was like, you know, I haven't made anything all year. I'm going to just say yes and then do what we can, knowing that it's just the first iteration of something that maybe we can come back to when we've got more money. I mean, this is what a venue thought. 
they really genuinely believe that, you know, a thousand pound commission for a 20 minute video of any sort of quality. I mean, with that thousand pound, it only covered equipment for two days, not even people. I had to crowdfund and get money from other organizations Mm -hmm. to pay the people who had to agree to do it Mm -hmm. for free to start off with. And then I paid them in retrospect, knowing that I was going to try and raise this money, but we had to get it done in a certain time frame. Like I would never think of working like that at the moment with my stage work or anything, to be honest, I'm just not in that place. But with this current situation, I was like, okay, I'll just ask if people will do this with me, let's do it. And if they don't, then we won't. But that specific ask, 20 minutes for a thousand pounds, that is not just unique to this place. You know, everyone might be like, oh my God, that's terrible. But actually it's not unreasonable that a lot of other places have asked similar things. I know, I know. I'm tracking back myself now. And I think we all are guilty of perhaps not understanding or thinking through how much all of this stuff costs and are unrealistic yeah oh god there's a big old Pandora's box to open there isn't there I mean there's totally it's so easy I could like take three hours (laughs) of footage on my phone and join it together on iMovie or whatever other free online thing there is and you'd have 20 minutes just because you can it doesn't mean you should I think there's a question here, though, isn't there? And it, it's some questions of like scales. It's some questions of format. And it's some questions of which platforms the eventual mm-hmm. content may be going on. And then there's another layer of questions that's like, who is it with? And what is its intention? And if it's a replication of a staged experience, then questions of quality. And you know, you're going to want a decent camera in there. But if it's something whereby you could get away with shooting mm-hmm. it on an iPhone and the format of what it is, that last product, that it works for that then there's kind of a scale of economies in some ways that are product relevant yeah Yeah. I think it's absolutely true but I think we don't talk about that enough yeah true yeah so the expectation is you know I put the expectation on myself I knew that I didn't want to make a product just videoed on my iPhone that wasn't Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do I wanted to do something Mm -hmm. that had a higher production value except we didn't have the money so it was about joining those dots nobody said to me you have to do it with yeah, this yeah. production value. It has to be, yeah. I put yeah. that on myself because it reflects the work I'm doing on stage and those yeah. other things better rather than the sort of lo-fi stuff that I could have easily done. And it's perfectly valid. I think it, that's mm. what's great about it is, you know, photography, video making, music making, it's all democratized yeah. now, isn't it? And that's always going to be mm. a good mm. thing. But if we don't talk about that, the expectation is, you know, it can cause a bit of a mess, really. Can I skip you back? Because I know we are tromping down the digital path, which I'm really interested in. But I also want to come back to some of these issues about relationship artists or organisations and see where we pick up. So I wanted to almost track back to pre-COVID, if we can remember that time, and the ways organisations and artists' relationships are built. And I wondered how you, as an artist, first began to build your relationships with organisations and venues. What did it feel like and where did you feel that power was held? And Gary and Tamsin touched on this a bit in one of our previous podcasts. You know, the point they were making is it's a long haul thing. There's no quick fix to this. But I wondered what your experiences were building those relationships. Um, I suppose what I would start by saying is you need a thick skin and you need patience. <laughs> because the amount of times at the beginning as you're sort of setting up your company and you're trying to get work, the amount of times you hear no or the amount of times you don't hear anything, in fact, it's pretty substantial. I would say for a good sort of three, four years, I would maybe get responses to sort of 15, 20% of the points of contact that I'm making. That might might have been because that was emails, but it does take time to sort of set that up and also build trust. You know, an organization might hear your name through an application, but they don't know you. There's no relationship built there. So it's not a sort of 
inroad for that first application but then if you you know you apply three or four times you start making more work they start seeing your work it does really take time i found to sort of foster those relationships and build awareness of what it is that you as an artist are doing and what you can offer i don't know if that's been the same experience for you um, Sita. i mean i guess when i think of organization actually my relationships are with individuals. It's not a whole building of people. In fact, I probably won't even chat to half those people in, in a building or an organization. I talk to a person and I build that relationship. I talk about stuff that isn't about work. Sometimes I call up and we chat about something where I'm not asking them for anything and they're not asking me for anything. And so I've been really lucky that, you know, there's plenty of things uh -huh. to talk about. I mean, we live in a pretty complicated planet and maybe I just like chatting about life and politics but actually that's been how I've connected with people and alongside that there's an interest in the work that I've been making regardless of their help or not and so I find that sometimes people come towards me because they're interested because I'm just making and I know that sounds a bit utopic obviously you need support from other places and sometimes I will just ask I need this do you want to give it to me in terms of money or space but I do take the time because I hate yes. transactional <laughs> conversations yeah. and I hate small mm. talk and I hate the the kind of only calling someone when yeah, you want something yeah. because it's easy to fall into that trap and I fall into it often as well but I try and be mindful of it so there's quite a handful of people who mm. have roles in making decisions and stakeholders who I just mm. stay in touch mm. with if I read an interesting article and I'm like you know what this head of this organization probably is never going to come across this I'm going to send it to them because I think someone who makes those decisions probably needs mm. to be reading this thing. And I'm not, I'm not apologetic about that either. Um, I don't expect a return response all the time either, unless I specifically try to elicit. But yeah, I prefer that than just constant social media yes, blanket yeah. posts. And I, I don't feel connected to anybody in that sense. And so my relationship with venues aren't with venues, they're with people, they're with individuals. And I keep those mm. over time. Mm -hmm. And then as I make my work, whether somebody that I spoke to gives support or it's actually somebody else that it fits better with, but then that first person is interested because I've kept in touch with them. And so the next project I do might be a better fit. It just, I've been really lucky, but I think it's partly because I'm really honest. And if I really want to make something happen, I'll find another way. And even if it's not at its best capacity because it's under-resourced, sometimes you just got to make things if that's what you have to say. And That's you know. interesting about the individual because that was on my list of things to ask you. I can completely see how relationships happen between people and not buildings, clearly. And then when that person moves on, where are you left, I wondered. It made me think about whether we as an organisation need to have much more of a thought through and scripted process of nurturing an artist as an organisation so they don't just get lost when somebody moves on. Of course, they'll probably go with that person as well, but also, you know, the organisation wants to be able to nurture that. I mean, it's the nature of all relationships, but have you been on the sharp end of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just so frustrating because people should move on from jobs in high places after a certain tenure, but artists don't move on. They're there all the time. They're just, we're just here plodding along doing our thing. So we don't move from business to business or this to that, whereas people we build relationships do. And Pretty much all the time, I'd say, I've been on the sharp end of that because I've got long, long-standing relationships with quite a lot of people and they do eventually move on. And yeah, they'll keep an eye on your work if they go to somewhere where that can apply. But it's really mm. sad. 
it's really sad because it's like, well, you just <laughs> wasted this and, and then the new person comes in and obviously they want to mark their territory in their own way. There's usually like a year worth of pre-programming that the previous person's done, but then they want to make their yeah. own mark and they do that by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's just like, uh, so there's some dots not being joined yeah. here. It's a real conundrum. Wayne, have you experienced that either negatively or positively? Have you been able to be carried from organisation to organisation through a strong relationship? No, not so much uh, in the same way that CETA has. But what I was thinking as we were talking about this is also there's kind of the relationship that leads to programming and then there are relationships that perhaps lead to support. And when I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking about associate artist Mm -hmm. places or other ways in which an organization supports an artist and those like sometimes being fixed things that don't have an end point. (laughs) So actually it's really hard. So if you're thinking about the relationship between artists and artistic director, how do those artists get in and foster those or build those relationships with the artistic director or the organization through other support schemes and have those be transient. So, you know, an artistic director, as Sita said, I agree with her. It shouldn't be that somebody sits in an artistic direction for 20 years because that position, that needs to refresh, but likewise the artists at which they're supporting need to refresh. So it's kind of this double-edged sword. You want to keep those parts moving to allow new people in and to allow those new relationships to foster but sort of making sure that you maintain those relationships as you progress forwards. What's your feeling about being associate artists? I wonder, because lots of organisations have associate programmes. I've always wondered what the benefits are. Hmm. I've been an associate twice in the last like 15 years. One was basically just the opportunity to make a work in that building. They didn't really produce anything. I was still bringing in all the money and, you know, it was like £5,000 from them. And another one was just basically nothing. So it's this kind of like elusive, holy grail that I feel I want, but I don't really know why. And so I've come to the conclusion that it only makes sense for me at this point to have it where actually the venue or organization's name or profile is really going to help me because actually they won't end up doing anything that's particularly worthwhile in terms of tangible things because at my stage, I'll be coming with a producer. I don't need them to produce anything specifically. I mean, the thing is, I kind of feel, well, I don't want to go into it assuming that they're going to just all of a sudden become a manager producer and do every single thing, because I think that's just a not likely thing to happen. And so I'm like, well, what am I going to get from this? It might as well be something that's going to raise my profile because I completely know the value of what those connections can do, even though I absolutely hate that that's the fact. But, you know, if you're an associate at Sadler's Wells, you you're going to get your work in a lot of other places just because of that reason. So in that instance, it's the logo, it's the name, it's the association that gives you the value. It is. And they might do bits and pieces for you, but ultimately you're still a freelancer going into that unless they co-produce a specific work, which you can do with or without their associateship. I mean, you're talking like the upper echelons where it really starts to make a massive difference, I think. It's obviously different at different stages of one's career. I think if you're much younger than just a little bit of support to write an application or that sort of stuff is really valuable but then you get to sort of mid-career artists there's a real lack of knowing what to do Mm. for people like that Um, because it's easy to say well this is how far your money gets when you're giving a bit of money to someone starting out where every penny is something like amazing you get to a point where when you're not in the top brand where you've got like giant producing budgets and stuff it's just like well what's going to really help this person yeah 
was going to actually make a difference to what they're already yeah. doing every day. And I guess there's also a sort of economic thing, isn't there, that as an artist like yourself starts to build a team, and we had this conversation an episode or two ago about building a team. So then that thousand pounds, if we use that as an example, there's further for that thousand pounds to go because it's not just you, it's the team that are all going to get involved in this project. And so there's that sort of tipping mm. point. If you're an individual artist, literally just jobbing, that thousand pounds might take you somewhere or that associateship might take you somewhere. But when you started mm-hmm. to build a company, there are some running costs about just being in a room. And then there's the mm-hmm. making. Wayne, what's your yeah. thoughts about being an associate artist? I think just as we were talking here, I'd, I'd written why. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really important question. I think I've been an associate artist and an associate company. Boxed are currently an associate company up at Stephen Joseph Theatre. And I think knowing why you're going into it, like Sita just mentioned there, if it's going to Sadler's Wells and becoming an associate at Sadler's Wells, because that brings prestige and that means that that forwards you on your journey somehow, that's great. For me, the reason why it makes sense for Vox to be an associate company at Stephen Joseph Theatre is the venue have quite a strong focus on new writing. And for me, creating dance theatre works that are grounded on text that incorporate new writing, it feels like there's a really nice fit there. I was also making a work when we met a connection I was making work that was being presented in the round they are an in the round venue and they're part of an in the round consortium so it felt like there were layers there to sort of why it would make sense for us to sort of build a relationship and then we ended up pivoting on that and they were the first co-producers and commissioners of Goggle Dance and you know we ended up working on a completely different project Mm. and engaging with local communities in totally different ways but the reason why we're working together was clear and I think I have been in a position before where that perhaps wasn't so clear and it felt like a bit of a sort of dead end but I think for me I'm in a different situation to Sita in that I'm a bit more of a one-man band (laughs) than Sita so for me actually to be able to call an organization and go I'm thinking of doing this in some ways that's a bit of producing support yeah Yeah, for me that's invaluable sort of planning projects and producing support is great but I also realize that there is a capacity question there in terms of an organization there is only so much time that they can give to associate or supportive platforms like associate. That's interesting because one of the things I wanted to chew over with you is the term artist development you've used support rather than development and I'm starting to go that way because it's a familiar term we all talk about our artist development schemes and programs and we're all really proud of them but now I'm really thinking about the weight of those words and what that unwritten message is in their combination and it's something like saying you're not good enough Mm -hmm. as you are so we're going to help develop you which doesn't you know that's wrong on many fronts but the intention's coming from a good place and so I wondered your advice to an organization might be in terms of what do we call it artist support might be a nice one but what is it you actually need what should be in those programs that really does help you as an artist or as a young company to further your aims and ambitions I've actually never felt offended by the term development because I do think that I'm constantly changing and growing and I know where that inspirational support is needed or how it might change you but there's a couple of things one is that it should be I think a continuous thing and it often isn't it's about specific one-off things or it has an end and then there's no continuation after that and are we leaving people if whether it's an associateship or whatever that might be, where do you leave them at the end of that? And are they like in a good place to just fly away or do you just leave them with nothing that reflect the year of work you've done with them or whatever? And I guess the other part in terms of it's so bespoke. Everybody wants something different. Everybody needs something yeah, different. And I think sometimes yeah. when open call outs are there and it just feels very 
like I understand why those sorts of open calls need to be there in terms of democratizing how you pick people. But there's just so much where we're not generically the same. We don't all need the same things. And so the question needs to be not what this is what we can offer you, but what do you need? And then well, let's see if we can do that. Mm-hmm. And if we can't, then maybe find someone else. I don't yeah. know what the answer is, but I often feel like, and I've had this right from the start, where people have headhunted because I'm in a very small minority of South Asian makers in this country, that they'll be like, oh yeah, let's do a program for these 10 people. Let's do a leadership program or let's do a, a choreographic development program. Oh, I think, yeah, let's bring this mentor in mm-hmm. without having asked a single one of us who mm-hmm. what we're interested in. Like we were not the same people. Why are you making those decisions about us? Yeah. Why didn't you just ask us? I think this is what I was going to lead on with. Like in terms of like how people become associate artists or associate companies at places, I think needs to come from conversation rather than a call out. So perhaps it's a call out that then incites a conversation and through conversation, you find out what that artist is about, what it is their plans are over the next few years and whether as an organization, there is an alignment there and you could offer some support or whatever that might be. Because like Sita Mm -hmm. said, it's also bespoke. Each artist makes different work. Each artist works in a different way. Each artist set up their own sort of setup and support bubble is is different and each organization is different and how they engage with their community and their audiences and what it is their kind of curatorial voice is is always different so I think there's only one way that that can you know through conversation really through through sort of working out what it is the vision is for both organization and artist and seeing how that might align I'd be really curious to know of all the artist associateships across however many years how many times an organization has chosen someone that they didn't know from Adam well that's Mm. interesting isn't it I'd be really curious because I personally think it's always people that an organization knows already and has some relationship with and then they need to do the right thing by putting an open call out but they're already doing what we're suggesting now which is that they're building these relationships but what that does is it gives a false sense that anybody can apply and actually that's not the case and I really really hate it when organizations there's somebody who calls you up they really think you should apply for this thing And it feels like they just want to say, well, we had 100 applications for two roles. And then it's like, you know, applications are the leeches of life and soul. (laughs) There's lots of us I see on like why we put ourselves to that. We do so many many of them. them. And so when an organization calls you because they want to get across a certain demographic or a certain number of people and you know that you're not likely to get it. And you're just like, oh, do I really want to? And then they call you up and you're like, oh, maybe I've got a good chance because they've called me up. And I'm like, no. Oh, it's just like, just don't waste our time. Oh, my heart goes out to you because I'm on the other side of that and writing the fundraising applications. I found out today I've got three to write within the next you know, week. And I wrote 50 in the year 1920. <laughs> like, that's what a week. What was I doing all my time? But I'm being paid to do that. And if you're freelance, you're not. Yeah, we're not. And so there's a real, yeah, yeah, yeah there's, some, there's something there, isn't there? And it's thorny because I can understand on the side of the organization, putting the call out there because you're trying to find new people, not just go to your preferred close knit network, but equally, and this leads me on to my next mm. question, really equally, you might be trying to develop a certain artist through their journey. And so then there's a reason for keeping that support going. One of the things 
that I wanted to ask you was there's been a lot of talk and it's filling my mind at the moment about how to shift power and create more sustainable work and bring the voices of freelancers and artists closer to the operations. And Wayne, you and I were both in a conversation with Equity about this and they were asking some interesting questions Mm. to us as organisations about how we might create more sustainable work. And it always provides me with a conundrum, which is supporting less artists for longer with higher levels of support or supporting more artists Mm. at a lower level of support and of course there is a way of doing both of those I suppose if you're not one of those people (laughs) that's chosen that's not good at all if you're one of the ones that's getting high levels of support you're quite happy with how things are rumbling along yeah don't want to rock the boat (laughs) I don't know it's a conundrum for an artist and it's a conundrum for the organization I think I wondered whether you had an idea about what you thought a sustainable way an organization could be working with a freelance artist or or a small company their resources are finite they can't support everyone so choices have to be made about whether you're supporting an artist over a longer term at a higher level of support or smaller and 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 how that's done in a more equitable fashion than it is now I guess my observation and personal experience in that situation in terms of building-based organisations, so venues and the relationship with an individual, is that until that building has sort of got their house in order and they're covering what they need to cover, it feels like, I guess if I give this a context as one example, so often artists will go somewhere on tour and they... As part of their arts council, they're covering most of it. It's mostly subsidised. So they might say, well, I'll give a workshop for free. But you don't know as an artist, the locality and the audience in that region, that's a venue's remit. And they don't support you to do that because they don't have the resource of a human being on their end to go and do that. So they're being offered something for free that will benefit both them and you. But internally, it's not on their priority list to do that. And I think this about several things, but that's just one example, is that until certain things are given as much priority as insurance or an accountant or a cleaner in the building, whatever those things are that are just a no-go to ever get rid of, things like artist development, having a diversity policies implemented, until those things are as intrinsically important to somewhere, they're never going to free up the resources to make that thing happen. And so resources are always going to be limited. How are you going to redistribute them so that they function more equitably? Because we're not going to magically make more money come into places. But if we're always functioning on a breadline where the building is only operating at the amount of resources that can keep it running and hiring shows, and that's it, how are we ever meant to implement any new strategies or anything like this it has to be vitally important and that doesn't need to be all strategies it can be one thing let's say it's artist development and you're going to say you know what we're going to put in enough to pay a company or an artist because this is what it costs for a year on a minimum wage and then they can do what they like they can work with us we can make a plan we can make a contract we can make a timetable but 500 pounds here or a thousand pounds there realistically What is that going to bring us? It's always going to have to be leveraged to bring in more resource. So if resource is that cornerstone that that you've got X amount of stuff, it has to be about redistribution and priorities because otherwise you can't make anything Redistribution is an interesting concept and we're applying that to a number of our programmes. It's thinking, you know, our resources are the same, but if we worked with artists in a slightly different way, 
we might empower them to be able to do more with the small investment that we've got rather than controlling it. And an example I'll use is we're, we're thinking about our class program, which used to be just us saying, right, we'll have an African class and we'll pay you pounds an hour to do it. And, and now starting to think, well, how could we support that artist to run a class in their own community with our money so that they have a stronger relationship with those participants? It's more about us supporting their class rather than us paying them for them to run our program and then when a crisis hits we might disappear because we're fragile too but that artist and the participants that have been going to their class have got a much stronger bond and a much greater chance of being able to continue in some way than if we just pulled the rug out and said we're, we're gone and all these things need thinking through but we're trying to think about that redistribution idea a lot I mean, I feel like that's a really great way of thinking of it because actually we are in a really transactional system, just generally speaking, and have been forever, which is that you yeah. just do this thing. Yeah. You, you get paid yeah. and you come and, and do this go, thing yeah. and then bye-bye. And it's like starting from scratch yeah. every time. It goes back to what I, you were saying, Wayne. But I, I think that that's really being challenged mm. at the moment. Like I'm seeing a lot of call-outs trying to address that, trying to address the fact that we all know that this one-night pop-up performance thing, like it doesn't work, it doesn't bring audiences in, it doesn't help artists build sustained relationships with their audiences. We all know as artists, like it takes such a long time to get a project off the ground. Even if you were revisiting a, a venue with your next project, yeah. it might be a two year gap between your last show and the next one. And it's just, you know, how do you sustain that that relationship with venue and with audience? But it's, it feels like at the moment that there are the beginnings of this thinking about how to, you know, I mentioned co-creation earlier, but it might not necessarily be about co-creation, but, or even co-producing, like some of the best models I've worked with organizations is when it's been a co-producing model, because it's meant as an artist, I've got access and a conversation with the marketing department, the learning and engagement department and the artistic director. Mm. And that's, that's felt great. It's felt really holistic. It's meant that me as an artist have kind of got to bring everyone on board with what the vision for this project is. And then the organization mm. kind of took ownership of that in some way and went oh I think we've got yeah. this idea and we could make it fit with our brand voice in this way and for me that's been super successful but then there is this sustainability issue as well then once that project's run then that's over and that's finished <laughs> like how, how to then keep that relationship developing even though there's no project to be working on it's the beginning of something isn't it because I imagine if you had inspired an organization across mm. its mm. team with your work then the most natural thing would be about extending and keeping that going particularly if you've got shared aspirations as to what success looks like I remember a commission that we'd done is just a small show that came to a park a really unloved park underused park it's the hottest day of the year and we really didn't have much audience we'd had a really short lead time but we put it on we would got some people there and I remember one of the dancers just turning around and said hmm, well you didn't do any marketing and that kind of feeling of all of the responsibility being on us for getting the audience there. But if the two of us had thought about and talked about, if I'd spoken to them and said, listen, this is what I really want to do in this park, they might have said, oh, don't bring this show. We've got something else that we could do back with. If I'd actually shared what I was trying to get, what success might have looked like for me, we might have been able to work in a completely different way than just disappointing everyone by bringing a show and not being able to mm -hmm. get the audience there for it. I know we're careering through and there's so much we can talk about, but there was another finding out of the Freelance Task Force report. It was saying that organisations tended to rely on freelancers for project-related activity, just as you said, Wayne, and it was calling for organisations to connect 
with freelancers across other areas of their business. And again, it's something that I'm really intrigued by. How can I bring the artists that I'm excited by into Greenwich Dance and flavour everything else we're doing, our schools programme, our youth programme, our overarching mission, what we look like, what our website has on it. And I wondered what your thoughts are on that and whether that's a yearning, whether you have a want to influence any organisation that you're working with beyond the way you've been able to influence them so far. Is there anything that's on your wish list? Do you sit there going, God, I wish I could get my hands on that because I would do X with it? Actually, it's something that's often at the forefront of my mind. And initially, it started out thinking about the whole idea of artists as leader and the questions I had around that big push, which I think it's great on so many levels to, to understand that artists can be leaders and influence in different parts of an organisation or the sector. But not everybody wants to be a leader. And so it's not a blanket thing. It's just, well, yeah, all artists can be leaders because a lot of them don't want to be in. And that's perfectly fine. I guess where it comes into it is having artists on boards, having artists influencing other aspects or other programmes that a venue or organisation is running has a lot of potential because some artists will have that desire or skill set and you know skills that you would never think that somebody has like there's random stuff that I can do which probably nobody will ever know about because I do it for fun and I do it privately and you know like I'm I quite like painting and I'm good at sewing you know it doesn't come out in my day-to-day persona as a choreographer but in terms of a venue And I've actually applied and been successful for a DYCP in the first round just now. It's developing your creative practice. It's a branch of the Arts Council so that I can shape an offer as a consultant that isn't coming from a specific training of diversity or equity or those sorts of things. I'm not coming at it from that way. I'm coming at it from a very much a lived experience and the kind of things that I read and I'm engaged with. To be able to just be invited, a lot of people talk to me and are interested in what I have to Mm. say about certain things, but then it becomes a consultation Mm. without being paid. And I spend a lot of time doing that. And so, yes, actually my role in this, and maybe others feel the same, isn't necessarily something that is a space that could be in a venue all the time. Mm -hmm. But actually a lot of my time is taken up by consulting for no money. There's just a chat. But actually the chat Mm -hmm. is quite useful. Mm -hmm. If that could be shaped, I think I could offer something quite valuable to those situations without being embedded only in one place. And can I pick up just uh, that question about boards? Mm -hmm. Is being Mm -hmm. on a board really what artists want to do? It isn't what I want to do. We have an amazing artist on our board and I'm thrilled and uh, cherish her, but she can't apply for all the things that we do because... Mm, Because conflict of interest. Yeah, exactly. So it's one of the things that I hear artists saying a lot of recently about them wanting to be on boards and I just wonder whether that's been thought through. I don't want to be on a board. (laughs) And the thing is, when you say do artists want to be on boards, again, it's so bespoke. It depends what level a person is at in their career or in terms of what they want to do and how they want to influence the world for me it doesn't interest me partly because I don't want to give my expertise for free like that I would rather be brought in as a consultant Mm. to influence Mm. a board Mm. than to be unpaid on a board which is something I can't afford as a freelancer I think that's a model Mm. if I was salaried I'd quite happily give some of my time for free to those situations but I'm not and that's the reality of the situation it's really tricky I think it's all mm. part of a desire to be part of the conversation, isn't it? Quite often it can feel quite passive being an artist. Yes, you're generating your own project and you're building the support for your own project that you might put through ACE, or if you're lucky enough that it doesn't have to go through ACE, then it doesn't go through ACE, but it, you're sort of generating those yourself. But then a lot of it's like 
responding to call outs like you know we said earlier you're writing application after application after application and that can feel in some ways quite passive but actually if an artist was brought into an organization to co-develop or co-design projects that they end up running that to me sounds like that would be an amazing experience being brought in to have a conversation with an organization developing a project together that then I run this is thing of the creative discussion like I think of myself as a creative first I work with the medium of dance or dance theater movement is you know my go-to but Mm. as a creative Mm. there's so much more that I could offer just at the end of last year, two things were offered to me, which I took them both up. One was to be on a panel for a, a couple of large commissions up in Scotland. And one was to curate studio sessions for Dance Umbrella. None of those two things have I done before, really. And I was like, yeah, sure, it's a bit of money. And, you know, I can put my voice into that. It was a weird experience because normally I'm at the other end of those things, you know, being chosen to do something mm-hmm. or be applying mm-hmm. for something. And it was really eye opening. But I guess what I had said to them both, like, actually, if this had been an open call, I wouldn't have applied. You wouldn't have gotten me into this because I don't see myself represented in that world that you're functioning in. But you had a bespoke approach. Mm. You wanted someone with the kind of things I put out there. You wanted someone that had my kind of opinions. So you brought me in to make sense of what this is. And I said, actually, that was really fruitful. Later on from that, I just was having a conversation with this artistic director of a venue up in Scotland and just this big conversation about, well, we do call outs for people from the ethnic minorities to try and diversify, but nobody applies what we meant to do. We've done our bit. And I said, well, actually, there's not many people that will fit this role. Why don't you just pick up the phone and call them? Because you're trying to be democratic by having an open call. But actually, we're not in an industry and you're even in a tiny part of that up there. You can pick up the phone to every one of those people that you think and legitimately ask them and have that conversation because you're more likely to fill that role than just put it out there saying we're looking for someone from an ethnic minority you might Mm. not get that person because they don't feel like they're going to get it they feel like a token gesture all of those things but actually if you just humanize some of these experiences I think that's a lot of what's missing is a lot of these things aren't humanized in the attempt to democratize yes 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 so I've got a couple more questions before we finish (laughs) one is another concern for organisations and the freelancers themselves, I'm sure, is this risk that we're going to lose so many because this year has been so very hard. And the stats are shocking. Apparently, 53% of the workforce were unsure if they'd stay in the sector and 9% said they wouldn't. And I wondered whether, you know, I asked you at the top of the programme whether you are responsible for freelancers yourself and dancers and musicians and collaborators. So do you see that affecting the people that you want to work with? And how are you feeling about the sector and its durability? I mean, for me, thus far, I haven't been in a situation where creatives that I've wanted to work with have dropped out. But I can completely empathise with people making that decision, actually, to leave the arts, because I think it was already hard enough (laughs) pre-COVID. There were a lot of people wanting to make and very small amount of resources and a few opportunities. So I think fast forward to post-COVID, and I think those challenges are just amplified. So yeah, I empathise with people that have decided to leave because... It's hard. And actually, you need to earn a living. You can have a passion for dance, you can have a passion for creativity. But if you're not able to actually make a living from that, then then why would you stay in it? Yeah, yeah. Sita, how about you? Are you seeing any of that? Um, no, but I'm also not seeing people dying of COVID because I'm stuck in my house. And so mm. it's so yes. abstracted. It's yeah. a set of numbers which are devastating and God awful. And I just partly still can't believe it. my eyes are open, but actually they're really like this and they're squeezed shut. And I don't know. I mean, like Wayne said, it was yeah. always hard. 
it was always hard now it's mm. extra doubly hard and i really hope and pray that we don't only lose people who struggle financially and then end up with the elite people who already get all the money and opportunities and can do it of mm-hmm. familial wealth yeah. and stuff yeah. i am not one of those people i'm just really really careful with any money that comes in and i'm very very careful to make sure that i can do what i can but i really hope we don't end up with a roster of artists who are just really you know rich mm. and posh mm. issue, because they're the ones who could afford it I think we're also going through a bit of a change. For me personally, I don't think we're going to return to back to where we were. And I think the reshaping, the rethinking about particularly dance, what it is, where it happens, who it happens with, I think that is going to sort of unlock a lot of other potential opportunities within the dance industry that might end up offering alternative ways of working. I don't know. I think there are opportunities there. It's just about making sure that you're sort of flexible or responsive enough to those in order to shift your practice while still kind of maintaining your artistic integrity what it is you want to be doing I mean I agree I think there needs to be support for people to learn how to do those things we're sort of thrust into it when I see mm-hmm. like I said when I was looking at people's applications and they were saying how is it responding to COVID how is it innovative and those sorts of open questions which I hate about going online and being digital I was like that's not innovative that's yeah. a necessity I mean how are you mm-hmm. using that technology that's innovative but maybe you don't want to but if you have to we need to make sure that there's not like a massive whole skills gap there and there's not a lot of stuff taken for granted in that Mm. process by any parties involved and we're at a stage where we can't be jumping over that to see the next stage of what this is going to be we need to be like applying ourselves to thinking well how are we going to do this well how are we going to do it sustainably how are we going to harness the fact that this is terrible at this point you know it's great for the environment. Yeah. Nobody's driving anywhere. <laughs> Nobody's turning lights yeah. on in buildings because those buildings are closed. But how are we going to make, how are we going to try and keep some of the good things going? How is it going to change, you know, giant touring companies that have like five vans that go around? Is that necessary? It's raising all those questions, isn't it? Which is the interesting and exciting part of where we are. There's so much more that is not interesting or exciting. Mm. But I think this notion of us planning for the unknown is what's really getting me down this kind of sense from the Arts Council application that we've all been doing of late and various other things of of kind of planning for when everything opens up so hopefully but as you write it the next layer of restrictions is announced or you know schools will not be open Mm -hmm. beyond Easter and you're writing this thing going yeah we'll all be back in the studio and it feels like there's this real disconnect with what we're being asked to think about and and what we're telling us and I think it plays into commissioning as you know we're, we're commissioning and working with artists at the moment and what are we asking them to make? Like for what part of this world, the now, or Mm. when we think we're going to be in eight months or back to normal? So much to unpick. So I'm going to throw a very difficult question at you. At least I think it's difficult. Maybe it's not. So if you were artistic director of an organisation for a year, let's say you've got unlimited cash at your disposal, what would you do right now to support the freelance workforce, Wayne? (sighs) What would I do? God, my head has immediately gone to like practicalities. I'm like, what is the organization? Where is it based? What are we like? You haven't given me anything. Do we have a physical space? Like, do we have a digital space? Like, (laughs) is it a global audience? Is it a hyper local audience? Uh, Yeah, because of those, I don't know how to answer that question. It's it's a tricky one. Yeah, fair enough. Sita, have you got any thoughts? I am not going to answer that question because I think that 
A, it's not a one-stop shop solution. And I hate when places and people Mm -hmm. feel or share it as though that's a way. It's not. It's an ongoing thing. And B, that's work that deserves to be paid (laughs) to do. And I'm not going to do it for you here. I think that is a brilliant place to stop. An excellent answer to a poor question. So if you would like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today, search for Talking Moves wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. And for more information about Sita and Wayne, head on over to GwenishDance.org.uk. And do remember that if you know someone you think we should talk to or have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please tweet us at Greenwich Dance. But for today, that's it from us. And do join us next time for more Talking Moves. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. I do appreciate that. What a fantastic conversation. And again, as always, food for thought.